All right, turn to Daniel chapter 9. We are in the second of what I believe will be three weeks in Daniel chapter 9, so I am going to uh, read the passage again, just verses 1 through 19. Follow as I read from the Word of God, Daniel 9, 1 through 19. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from Your commandments and rules. We have not listened to Your servants, the prophets, who spoke in Your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. And have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in His laws, which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against Him. He has confirmed His words, which He spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice." And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Amen. All right, a bit of a recap of what's going on here. Uh, Daniel was taken into Babylon as a young man 
almost 70 years before this scene in Daniel chapter 9. He is an old man here, probably in his late 70s or early 80s, having spent the majority of his life in exile in Babylon. And in verse 2, we're told that as an old man, Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah. Uh, He obviously had access to God's word. He's reading the book of Jeremiah, and he comes across a prophecy in Jeremiah about uh, how many years must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, which is one way of saying what they're living in right now. That prophecy is found in Jeremiah 25, where it was originally told that Babylon would conquer Israel and all the surrounding nations, and then Babylon would rule for 70 years. Um, But an end of their reign... Uh, At the end of their reign, after 70 years, God would destroy Babylon. So as Daniel is reading this prophecy, he is realizing that this has now come to fruition. Because he's in, as verse 1 says, the first year of Darius the Mede. The Medo-Persians have come and conquered Babylon. And he's realizing, he said when when the time was up, when 70 years have passed, uh, Babylon's going to be destroyed and toppled, and that's what's just happened. Which begs the question then for him, well, what does that mean for the people of God? Because this was all about our discipline and our exile and our, you know, a judgment of sorts for our sin. So what does this mean uh, for us? So Daniel keeps reading, we can imagine. It doesn't say that, but um, we, you know, they don't have chapter verses at that time. I mean, he's reading the scroll of Jeremiah and So he comes to where we know as Jeremiah 29, and just listen as I as I read this. So he's just read about, you know, the destruction of Babylon, and um, but what does that mean for God's people? Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. For thus says the Lord, when seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, to Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me, when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Back home. Back to Israel. Now, I can only imagine that Daniel is having to, you know, check his eyes and and go back and read that section that he just read and and what we know is chapter 25 and then and then the even better part here, not only will Babylon be destroyed, but I'm going to bring you home. And he's just got to be, you know, in somewhat of disbelief, but in faith, I mean, he's just this is great news. This is what he has been longing for his entire life as he prayed three times a day facing Jerusalem uh, because that's where he would be restored to the right worship of God, the fellowship with God's people. This is what he's wanted since he was a young man. And uh, he has just discovered as an old man that it's happening. So this is incredible um, what he's reading It's incredibly good news. It's deliverance from slavery. It's certain restoration to the Holy Land. It's it's restoration to right worship of God and with His people. Um, But it makes the response interesting because it's pretty obvious the whole response is just repentance. It's, you know, confession of sin, pleading for mercy, 
um, which is an interesting response, and it almost seems that it doesn't fit until we remember, well, that's kind of what God does in our life too. We talked about that last week, how you know the gospel comes into somebody's life and all of a sudden we're exposed in our sin. We're before a holy God and we're convicted. And you know, you have to know your sin in order to know the Savior. You have to know the bad news before you can know the good news. And that's really what we see here as God comes with good news his lights are coming on further and further, and Daniel's just more and more aware of, of sin. Not only of his sin, but we'll talk about of uh, the sin of Israel and the, and the sin of God's people. But the gospel comes. This is great news. This is gospel news for Daniel. And, uh, and he, he prays in repentance, deep repentance. So what I want to do this week is talk a bit more about Daniel's prayer, um, honing in a bit more closely on this aspect of repentance. Now, it's pretty interesting to me because we don't get the point, uh, we don't get the picture at this point in the book that Daniel is living in rebellion against God. In fact, we're never given that picture of Daniel either as a young man or as an old man. Just the opposite, we actually get the picture throughout Daniel's life, that he was faithful throughout this time of exile. So if you'll remember, when the book opens, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has sacked Jerusalem and he has brought a bunch of Israelites back with him into exile. People of the royal family and nobility, it says. And then it says, youths without blemish, of good appearance, uh, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning. Daniel and his friends are among these youths, these teenagers probably, that were brought back. And these are top-notch young men from Israel. And in chapter 1, there's a scene where the king, Nebuchadnezzar, assigns these youths uh, food portions and wine, Babylonian food and Babylonian wine for their meals. But what happens? Daniel, it says in verse 8, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. It's a little strange to us, but we have to remember Daniel's living under the regulations of the law. This is his seeking to be faithful to God. Even apart from the Holy Land where, you know, the natural outworking of his relationship with God took place, but he's over here in exile and he wants to be faithful. And so he declines, respectfully, we don't want to eat that, which is risking his life, Um, but God gives him favor. And so, number one, the king doesn't kill him for rejecting, you know, what the king gives him, but also they grew stronger than the rest, remember? And they just ate vegetables and water, and and they're like amazed, like, how are these, you know, Hebrew boys uh, doing so well? Well, it's because God is with them. The point that I'm trying to make is simply from the very beginning... As a young man, we see that Daniel was a faithful believer and he was following the Lord in his ways. We also get the same picture of Daniel at the end of his time in Babylon. Uh, This is the end. I mean, towards the end. In Daniel chapter 9, we see him reading God's Word here in chapter 9. We also see during the same time period, which was around the time the lion's den somewhere in this time period, Uh, That's when we're told he prayed three times a day, as was his custom. So we get the picture that he had been doing that from the time that he was a young man, three times a day, prayed facing Jerusalem, continuing in his relationship with God, 
throughout this time of exile. The point is, Daniel was not living in rebellion against God in Babylon. Just the opposite. Yet, there is this prayer of repentance. So what's going on here? Well, notice in the text that he is confessing corporate sin for the people of Israel. I didn't see any individual language, but all corporate. If you look at verse 6, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets. Uh, That's what got them into this mess in the first place. You know, the prophets came with God's word and uh, they weren't listening. Verse 7, to you, Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. It's again, a corporate confession. Verse 8, to us, Lord, belongs open shame because we have sinned against you. You get the picture. Um, It's a corporate confession. But again, we get the picture that Daniel was a faithful believer. We get the picture that throughout the book, he's the kind of guy that would have been listening to the prophets when he was in Israel. Now, we don't know that for sure. Uh, Maybe, you know, he was rejecting the Lord in Jerusalem and this whole being sent into exile was a conversion experience or something like that. But we really don't get that picture. We get the other picture that he's just a faithful guy uh, from the time that he arrives till the time that he leaves over 70 years. And the point is that Daniel is not the one that has necessarily sinned against God in these ways um, that he is confessing. I mean, I'm sure Daniel had sin in his life. We all have sin in our life. We're all sinners. Um, But we do not get the picture that he's one of the ones that hardened his heart to God and was rejecting God's commands and rejecting what God had said, Um, yet he owned the sin as his own. And this is the important point, because he understood the covenantal nature of sin. He understood that he was a part of the people of God So in a very real way, their sin was his sin. Now, this may offend our individualistic Western sensibilities, but there is wisdom here that we need uh, as well. So, I was convicted thinking about this. How many of us respond like this when certain parts of the church are walking in sin? You know, it seems to me that often we would just rather assume distance ourselves from the uh, problematic areas of the body of Christ and the offending parties. For example, uh, maybe the way some in the church handle race relations and we think there isn't a biblical priority on unity in the body of Christ. Or just politics in general. We think that there is a pre-existing political grid that blinds people to... Uh, some principles that are needed and necessary and that have to be a priority for us as Christians? Or just how about sexual sin in the church? I mean, haven't we had our fill of that? It's just rampant. But do we go before God in prayer as if it was our own sin? Or do we just try to shine light on what is wrong and distance ourselves from it? Now, this is not to say that we shouldn't fight against these evils that are in our midst. We absolutely should. But the question for us is, do we ever get to the point of corporate confession? Is there ever a we and us in our prayers, which is not only identifying with God, but identifying with His people, wretched as they may be? 
Or do we even make it a matter of prayer in the first place? Or is it just about the they's and the them's and their sin? You know, um, we're a non-denominational church, but I would venture to say that the two camps that probably um, most represent us are the Presbyterian Church in America and the Southern Baptist Convention. We, We just have a lot of both people that went to RUF and college and different things like that. Our pastor is... PCA ordained, so we naturally kind of lean that way. Um, But also, many Southern Baptists that have come to church here out of growing up in the Baptist church. And I was thinking about the fact that the PCA and the SBC have, in recent years, issued corporate confessions of their complicity of sin in the civil rights era. Now, if not overtly racist, they're recognizing that they were at least complicit and silent um, in the face of glaring sin through the civil rights era. And they recognize that there were many in their midst and their fellowship that were overtly racist. Now, I have heard some people say, well, that's easy to confess the sins of past generations and we should be looking to confess the sins that are glaring in our lives And in our generation, and I do think that uh, that's true. We should not just look back at a generation past and confess their sins. We should also be looking at the log that is presently in our eye and in our church. But it's both and, not either or. Because it seems that Daniel was a faithful young man at the time of the beginning of the exile. So it was not necessarily his sin, technically, that sent them there. But he owns it as as his own sin, and he is confessing corporate sin 70 years later, kind of like the PCA and SBC, which is really what they were doing as well. We need to think about this. We need to think about this uh, next time something in the broader church embarrasses us for its foolishness. Or how about just uh, starting with the things that are out there now? Number one, making it a matter of prayer. But number two, making a matter of corporate confession. This is a we issue. Praying that we have sinned. Not they. Although he does say they in his prayer, but he comes back to the we and to the us. And not only for the broader church, but also thinking about this on the... um, family level and our local church level as well. Now, in terms of thinking this way in our families, turn to Job chapter 1. I think I've showed you this before, but it made me think about it. Right before Psalms and Proverbs. Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Whoever gets there first can read it. Is it verses 1 through 5? Yeah. I'll read it. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. 
And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would sin and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Just to see, we see in the first few verses there that Job was a faithful guy. He was a godly man. And um, in the last verse, couple verses there, we see he would offer burnt offerings, which is a way of, you know, uh, confession of sin, repentance, faith in God. Um, for his children, when they would get together and do their thing, because it may be that they have sinned. Now, I hear something quite a bit, and it goes something like this. Well, we did all we can do, and at the end of the day, their sin is their sin. Now, this passage is not opposed to that fact. It does not remove individual responsibility of sin. And nothing that I'm saying should... I'm not saying that that we should think that way, but there is more to it than that. Job continually offered sacrifices according to the number of all of his kids because he knew that it was possible in their feasting and celebrating that they would sin against God and curse Him in their hearts. And it says that he did this continually. This does not sound like someone that says, well, I raised him right and what they do is on their own heads. You know? Job took responsibility for his children's sin. He owned it as his own. Now that is different than saying that the guilt of his children's sin was on him. There's still individual responsibility for sin, but he took responsibility for it. So what does this mean? Well, think about children. It means that if we have a child that's in a pattern of sin, maybe it's disrespecting you, maybe it's disrespecting others in authority over them, teachers, coaches, maybe being unloving to their friends, maybe it's looking at pornography, um, getting into sexual sin. We don't just approach it as their sin that needs to be dealt with. That is a part of it. One of the things that they must understand is that they are individually responsible for their sin before God, and they must repent, and we only can repent by ones, right? I mean, they have to repent, truly, from the heart, and have their own faith. They are responsible, but we also go to God to confess our sin. Lord, we have sinned. Uh, Lord, sexual immorality has taken root in our home. An example about the uh, disrespecting and all of that, a couple of our children have become um, especially disrespectful to their mother in the last few weeks. And, uh, you know, this is not just kids being kids. I mean, it is that, but it's much more than that. This is high rebellion against God. He has given them a command to honor and obey their mother and father, and and they are, whether they know it or not, giving Him the big middle finger. I mean, that's what they're doing in their sin. This is a refusal to honor and obey God uh, by honoring and obeying their parents, the parents that He has assigned to them. This is ultimately a rejection of God's authority. So how do we handle it? Well, one way... We discipline our children for their sin, and we call them to God, and we call them to see their responsibility before God. And uh, but in addition to that, in light of passages like this, one of the things that Tiffany and I have started doing is to confess our sins corporately. You know, I'm the head of my house. This is all happening under my leadership. 
That doesn't mean that I'm assuming the guilt of their sin, but I am taking responsibility for it. There's a difference. Um, And again, this offends our Western sensibilities, but I think it is obviously biblical, as we see in Daniel, as we see in Job. These were good, faithful, godly men, of course, by God's grace, but um, they were taking responsibility for the sins of others to whom they were covenantally connected, like those in your home, like those in your church, uh, like those in the broader church. So, uh, does anyone have any thoughts about that or questions? Chris, I have some questions about the scripture okay. itself. Okay. Um, so, he uses the word perceived that it would be 70 years. But in Jeremiah, it just says 70 years. Mm-hmm. So, was Jeremiah more coded than that? And we have translated it to be 70 years, and it was somehow esoteric? And Daniel figured it out? <laughs> Or does it really just shamefully say that there was a scroll right there for 70 straight years that no one bothered to read that told them exactly how many years it would be? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that perceived just means he came across it. But I don't know that that means that, um, you know, they had lots of scrolls, and so maybe he wasn't always in Jeremiah. But, you know, like... We do the same too. It's like I've read this fifty times and I've never seen that. You know, uh, I think just in the in the providence of God, He was honing Daniel in on something that He had said about seventy years prior when they were being sent in. And so I do think now I don't know what access they had. Obviously, Daniel had access seventy years later, so that they had something. They had the scrolls somewhere. Uh, I don't know if they smuggled them in or you know what. But he still had access to the prophet Jeremiah. And um, I don't think it means that it was coded and, and he did the math as much as he just came across something and look at what this is talking about. But perhaps it was just that God did not illumine that truth to him until it was the right time for him to see it. That's the way I would kind of lean. But I reserve the right to be wrong. <laughs> When you are praying corporately for the family sin, are you listing? Are you are you saying specific things or just sin? Well, you know, um, the disobedience, dishonoring of the parents is kind of that's just where we are, and I'm sure we're not the only ones that deal with that. Um, but I pray for them specifically, and that this sin is a problem for them, and that God would have mercy on them individually. But I also have begun to pray, Lord, this is happening under my leadership, and you have given me charge to raise these children up to follow you. That's a point where I am pleading for His grace. I understand that they absolutely cannot uh, see and, and care about these things unless you intervene and give them a heart to respond and have mercy on them. But I really think that's what Daniel's doing. Pleading for mercy for the people of God. And so there's a different posture, I think, in my own heart when I assume it as my own responsibility. It humbles me, you know, um, as opposed to they got problems. They do have problems. So do I. But um, 
Does that make sense? I mean, it's just, I am praying for their sin specifically and their responsibility for their sin specifically, but also recognizing covenantally that I have responsibility here as well. Um, You know, the ultimate significance of this idea of covenant and sin uh, is in connection with Adam and Jesus. Um, They are what is known as the two federal heads of mankind, the doctrine of federal headship, two representatives of mankind. Adam represented all humanity in the garden, and Jesus represented his people in his uh, life, death, and resurrection. So, meaning, um, Adam, when he sinned, you sinned. I sinned. We all sinned. Because he was our covenant head. Uh, We were connected to him in covenant. Whether we understand that or not, whether we like that or not, that's what the Bible teaches in Romans chapter 5, for in Adam, uh, all died. Because through Adam's sin, you know, death came into the world, and we are born in sin. We inherit that from our uh, from conception because Adam sinned, and the way I was trying to explain it to one of my kids this week is he was contagious, you know, <laughs> and uh, he spread it to all mankind except for one, Jesus, because he was not born by normal means. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. He had uh, a pure conception, unlike us. So he didn't inherit original sin. He was not born in sin. And he persisted from that time sinlessly. And he was representing us from his conception sinlessly. So he was, our, he was what is called the last Adam. He was our representative in his life. He lived a perfect life. And we want to love that because that means we lived a perfect life in him. He died for our sins on the cross. He was stood in our place as our representative. He rose from the dead on our behalf so that we now trust in Him for the forgiveness of sins, for life everlasting. And truly, we are in Christ as if we had lived a perfect life with no sin so that we don't fear judgment. We know that we are God's. We are righteous Not because we are righteous, but because Christ is righteous and He represented us in His life. So just to say, this idea of covenant connection of sin is throughout the Scriptures. Those are the two most significant um, examples in Adam and in Christ. We are all born in Adam. And when we're saved, we are put in Christ. That's where you want to end up. (laughs) You know, That's where all the blessings are. Uh, the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. So, anyway, uh, I hope that's been helpful. Might it reflect in the way that we um, lead in our spheres of influence and even operate in the body of Christ. You know, when, when sin is rampant in our midst, we can own it as our own. That doesn't mean we have personal guilt in the matter, but we do have responsibility as members of the body of Christ. Hey, that hand over there is really... Uh, sick and and it's our body and so we're going to pray we and us not just they and them alright let's pray Father we um, have sinned greatly 
against you. We corporately have sinned against you again this week, and um, we have thought little of your commands. We have uh, followed our own hearts, our own desires against you. Uh, Lord, in the church at large, there is um, rampant sexual immorality. We have sinned against you. You you are an avenger in these things. And uh, we have thought that we could just mock you and get away with it. And so, Lord, we plead for mercy for the church at large uh, that you would continue on account of the promises that you've made to faithfully refine us and have mercy and, and discipline and strengthen and purify us. And Lord, we rejoice collectively in um, the hope that we have in Christ. Lord Jesus, that you represented us perfectly and fully, that you lived in our place, that you died for our sins, you rose from the grave. And uh, as you are seated in heaven, we're even taught that we are seated there with you because you're our representative. And uh, Lord, we know that as surely as you have been risen, as surely as you're in glory, so too will we be on the other side of the grave. Um, Lord, help us to understand these things, not only ultimately for our salvation, but also uh, the practical outworking of our covenant responsibilities in our homes, in our churches, and beyond. Uh, We commit them to your care and ask for your guidance and wisdom in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Hey, don't forget, next Saturday, we're going to have a shindig, and I will uh, send out some information. Okay?